Well, this week, as a nation, we will elect our next president. We are on the verge of what many people have said recently will be the election of our generation. Now, I don't want to sound too dramatic, but I actually agree with that statement. So let me explain what what I mean when I say that I agree with that statement. That when you wake up on Wednesday morning in the suburbs of Salt Lake City, Utah, things will almost certainly feel just as they did before. In fact, if you were just to fast from media for that day, work from home, you probably won't notice any difference. So I don't mean to say that if Biden wins, the world will come crashing down around us on November 4th. Nor do I think that if President Trump wins, we should all breathe a huge sigh of relief and go back to business as usual. It's my view that our country can be compared to a bullet train heading straight toward a cliff, and that over the past few generations, it has been rapidly picking up speed. This election, in my estimation, will merely determine whether or not we as a culture pick up speed or slow down just a little bit. In other words, there is no outcome in a worldly sense that I think that we as Christians, God-loving, kingdom builders, win in this election. And that's okay. Because our hope is not in victory in the voting booth or in the battlefield. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So praise be to God that victory has already been won. There is today, as there will be tomorrow, both before and after election day, much work to be done in building up Christ's church. We ought not give this election then undue attention. Do you know what I mean when I say that? We shouldn't give it undue attention. I think we're probably going to be looking online, checking the status on our phones, watching the news perhaps, maybe even staying up late at night to see as the numbers continue to roll back in on the western states, things like that. I think that's possible for a Christian to watch those things and to not be a sin at all, not to be unwise or wrong for us to be curious and perhaps even concerned at some level as to how these elections will play out. We must be careful to not give undue attention, I would say even maybe affection, trust, and abiding confidence in whatever happens. The credits will not roll after this election. History will not end. As believers, we must prepare ourselves for continued kingdom work. You see, there's a problem with our world today. It's a cancer that if not dealt with, It will destroy everyone in its grasp eternally. I want to read for you from Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 as we start today. This tells us of the state of humankind because of our sinfulness. And it's applied in Romans 3 to the Jew and the Greek, which in the mind of the reader is everybody that exists. I'll read this for you. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The title of today's sermon is simply that. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So what is the single biggest problem in our nation today? People who have not yet voted will go to the polls, will go to the voting booths, and they will vote by the end of Tuesday. And many people will be voting for a variety of different issues, things that they think are the big problems of our nation today, things that most need to be dealt with. But our biggest problem is not health care. 
It is not immigration or war or taxes. It certainly isn't COVID. It's not even socialism or tyranny or gun rights or First Amendment rights. It isn't divorce, homosexuality, or even transgenderism. Our biggest problem isn't climate change or corrupt politicians or even abortion. Our biggest problem is that our nation has forsaken collectively the one and only all-holy God. And our votes cannot fix that. None of our candidates can fix that. I suppose it's possible for a person to have a mostly correct view of God and still not give him the honor that he is due. James says as much, for example, in the New Testament, doesn't he? He writes, you believe that God is one? Good. Even the demons believe and shudder. But it seems evident to me that the primary problem with our nation is that it is full of people who do not know who God is. And they have no fear of God before their eyes. No matter who we elect, no matter how many conservative Supreme Court justices there are, no matter how many Republicans are sitting in positions of power in D.C., unless we in America fear God, our destruction is guaranteed. This is what we're going to be talking about today, the fear of the Lord. So what I want to do is I want to read for you our text this morning. Exodus chapter 1430 through 1518. So we're going to jump a couple of chapters here. We're going to just read that whole passage out loud together. When we get to the end, I'm going to go back and just look at a couple of parts of it. So I'm going to read it, pray, and then go back to the beginning. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and go there. I'm not going to put all these slides up today. I'm only going to put a few. And, and just a disclaimer for right now, I've, I've got, I think, 30 Bible verses that I'm using today, and I'm going to machine gun through them for a portion of the sermon. So I'm going to put all of those up on our uh, pastor's blog if you want to go back through there and check those out later. You don't have to feverishly try to fly through, and they're not going to be up on the screens, many of them. I'm just going to, just going to read through. But let's go ahead and read through together. Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 30, until the next chapter in verse 18. Let's read. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians... And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. 
Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased, you will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Father, this was written as a song of worship from the people who observed your great and mighty works. Father, I pray that we would be able to bridge any gap that we may have, a cultural gap, a time gap, to try to put ourselves back in the places of those who are observing, witnessing these great events, that we would see their words as significant as a genuine and natural response to your holiness, your power and your might displayed. Father, help us to not only be able to sing this praise of worship, but Father, to be able to apply it to our own day. And by that, Lord, I mean that we would see you as the unchangeable God worthy of being feared. That we would tremble before you because of your holiness. Father, help us to do that. We need you to send your Holy Spirit to even give us the ability to see clearly enough. To know who you are. To know who we are. That this may happen. Please do that, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. This passage of text was written, of course, during that period of time we refer to as the Exodus. That's why the book is called the Exodus. The people of God, the Israelites, who had, had been in bondage and slavery in Egypt for about four centuries. And things had been getting progressively worse for the Israelites. They began to cry out to the Lord to ask him to rescue them out of this struggle He sent them a deliverer and the man of Moses to come back and to speak to Pharaoh the words of God. He gave him Aaron to go with them so he wouldn't be alone and could speak to Pharaoh what God has commanded. Let my people go. Of course, Pharaoh would not listen. He would harden his heart. God would harden the heart of Pharaoh to make his name great. Pharaoh would not let the people go, but God would continue to do miracles, one after the other, ten mighty works and wonders, acts of judgment on the nation of Egypt, till eventually Pharaoh would release the people into the wilderness. When they left, they met the Red Sea, this giant boundary that kept them between slavery and freedom, and Pharaoh changed his mind. He came after and pursued the people, and God supernaturally blew a strong wind all night long, divided the waters of the Red Sea into a wall of water on the right and a wall of water on the left. His people walked through in safety. And as Pharaoh's army pursued, the waters came crashing back down, effectively destroying their army. People of God have just made it to the other side of the Red Sea. They've observed not only all these mighty works, these ten great wonders that came upon the land of Egypt, they also watched this great act of the sea parting. And what was their response? What we just read. We as New Testament believers have an advantage over the old covenant saints. We can see the whole gospel story laid out from the beginning to the end. We know the name of our Messiah. We know that he came and that he died on a cross and that he raised again three days later. And we know details about the life of Christ and his teaching And his teaching given to the apostles written down in our New Testament. Yes, we have advantages. And not just that, but we even know the experience that these people had in the Old Testament day, inspired by the Holy Spirit written down for us so that we can see what really went down. Yes, we have this advantage over the Old Covenant saints. But they have an amazing advantage over us in that before they were given the law, they actually experienced and observed the might and power of Almighty God through those awesome wonders and miracles. Can you imagine what that would have been like? We talk about significant events in history and say, where were you on September 11th? A generation before us would say, where were you when Pearl Harbor happened? Where were you when Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated or, or when, uh, when, when President Kennedy was assassinated? People have these, these, these points of history, right? At this time, this would have been like that for them, and more than any event, any event in our time. And people would have said, how old were you? How old were you when you marched through? 
I have to imagine that later in history, there would be people uh, looking back at that time like, oh, I remember it. You don't remember. You were four. You don't remember it. And they'd be, yeah, no, I remember. It was water and it was stuff like that, right? Because people would remember that as such a mark. They were told to tell their children about it. It's written so that we still remember it today. They had that great advantage. So that when they were given the law of God, when they heard God give them the Ten Commandments, they didn't know this as some random God, but as that God who did those mighty works and wonders, who did those signs, who redeemed them, purchased them out of slavery. That's the reference point that people would have had for God speaking to them. I want to go back to the beginning of the passage we just read and read for you the first response of the people. Exodus 14, I'm going to do verse 31. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. That was the right response. Watching what God had done. In his rescue of them, the people feared the Lord. And what does this fear lead to? What does this fear produce? What happens in the next verse? Worship. That's what happens next. Worship. This may be the only time in all of Israelite history where the entire congregation sung praises like this. Worship was the response to observing what God did. Their fear of the Lord led to his praise. You know, all my life, I grew up in Christian churches, grew up in uh, Sunday school classes and youth groups and college ministry, and then as a young adult, young adult ministries, and eventually as an adult. And all my life, I've heard this idea of the fear of the Lord be referred to in many, 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 many times in my life. I've heard pastors or well-meaning Christians define fear of the Lord as respect, respecting God. And I remember even when I was young, I wondered, well, then why would they use the word fear? You see, you should know the Bible was written in the Old Testament, was written in Hebrew. The New Testament was written in Greek, a little bit of Aramaic in there. But the whole Bible is written in different languages, and they had in those languages words for respect, awe, reverence. They had those in there then why wouldn't they just choose one of those words? Do you know what the Greek word is being used, both in the Old Testament, uh, Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, and the Greek New Testament? You know what word is used when it refers to the fear of the Lord? Phobos. Do you know what word that is? Does that sound familiar to you? It comes from the word that we use now, phobia. That's fear. We ask you, do you, do you have any phobias? Because we know what that means. The word they chose was fear. To try to take the word fear when we're thinking of the fear of the Lord and to kind of round off the sharp edges to make it into respect, respect God, will not do. When we get to know and experience the true God, there isn't a better word to describe that feeling than fear. Now, of course we will feel more things than just fear. Of course, more than just that. Certainly will. We will. We're told that we will. We observe people experiencing in a relationship with God other things than fear, but certainly not less. You know, I find it significant that when you read through the Bible and see times when the angel of the Lord shows up to people and they don't know that it's the Lord, and after the experience happens, they go, oh, oh my goodness, that was the Lord! And they're afraid. When people interact with God, they fall to their knees. When they interact with, uh, with a burning bush, who am I? When even in a vision, in a dream, when Isaiah sees the vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6, he cries out, I am unworthy. I am, I am a man of unclean lips. Who am I to see the Lord? When people interact with angels, the messengers of God, they fall to, their gro to the ground. Because this is the right response to an all-holy God and even his messengers sent direct from him. Fear. It's fear. 
The fear of the Lord is just that. We ought not redefine that word. Start there. Words mean things. Your fear has significant influence over you. Did you know this? In fact, if somebody can get you to fear something, they can control you with that fear. My kids get scared of bugs. I don't know where they get it. They're tiny. I've never showed them that I'm afraid of bugs. But when I see them run into bugs, a little cricket, a little ant, a mosquito, I make them confront the bug. This is my daddy responsibility. It's one of the things to do. Go catch that. Now put it in your mouth. I have threatened that. We haven't gotten that far yet. If you don't hold that, you will be eating it. That's kind of the line in my house. Different parenting styles, okay? But at the end of the day, you want your kids to confront those kinds of fears, don't you? Why? Why a bug? See, see this, is, this, is, this is distinctive here. I would do that with my kids' phobia of a cricket. I wouldn't do that with a phobia or a fear of traffic, right? So I wouldn't say, ah, look at that. Uh, there's semi-trucks flying down the road. Co-confront your fear and stand in the... I wouldn't do that. Why? Because the bug is not worth fearing. That's why. The bug is not worth fearing. When we fear what ought not be feared, it's foolish. Don't we know that? Did you have ever had one of those kind of, people call them an irrational fear, right? I know that spider's all the way over there. I know it intuitively it's not going to actually come over here, but I, I get all... Uh, and you know, don't you? You kind of laugh about it sometimes afterwards, like, man, I, why am I afraid of that thing? Do you know the amount of pressure it would take to squash that? You know it's irrational because you go, that, I ought not be afraid of that. It is foolishness to fear what ought not be feared, and we know that. That's why we press against those phobias in our life. But likewise, when we don't fear what ought to be feared... That, too, is foolish. Not only is fear the right response to an all-holy God, but the Bible commands us to fear the Lord. We're going to look at a bunch of different ways we, that the Bible talks about this. I want you to think like this. Yes, the people saw these mighty works and knew that there was a power working God to hold back the water from falling upon them when they marched through. And only a fool would, no worries here. That is an awesome, fearful place to be while God is protecting and preserving and while he promised he was going to bring the people out. It would be foolish for someone to not fear in that moment. But not only is it the obvious and natural response to events like this, it is commanded in the Bible. It is expected of people who know God. I want to show you a few of these verses. Many of them I'm just going to read out loud for you, uh, like I said before. Let me read these to you. Psalm 33, verses 8 through 9. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Simply by merit of the fact that he created all things, we should stand in fear. Ecclesiastes 3.14, I perceived that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. Isaiah 8.13 says, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. It's not just the Old Testament God. People like to play that game. Ah, oh, that, that was when God, before he matured a bit, or decided to change, or Jesus kind of said, Dad, you've got to stop this. People have all these crazy ideas about how God changed in the New Testament. Something totally new here. Jesus commands us to fear God. Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Fear him. So what is the fear of the Lord? I started by saying it's fear. We got to start there. We got to start with what the word means. 
We have to start looking at it rightly. He's not some Santa Claus in the sky that we have that kind of interaction with, or, or, or Pappy, long white beard and the, the, the Sistine Chapel version of human-looking God. That's not our God. He is a consuming fire. He is a jealous God and one of wrath. I think that people can understand fear because of the phobias we just mentioned. If I were to say, do you know what fear is? Yes, I think I can say I know what fear is. I think we might even be able to distinguish between types of fear. You can have a fear of a spider or a snake or of public speaking or of heights, and that's different than your fear of what, might, what would happen in your life if something bad happened to your kids, right? Isn't that categorically feels different? But we can understand fear. Additionally, we can understand what love feels like. We know that experience when something happens that causes us to fear, and when something else happens that causes us to love. We can feel love, and we can feel fear. But we have a hard time understanding how those two things fit together. How can you feel fear and love someone at the same time? I think it probably is true, isn't it? If the world were to say, you shouldn't fear one that you love. I, I think if they mean that regarding other creatures, that's probably probably closer to true. Waves, you shouldn't fear your husbands. Not, not with the kind of phobia fear that we ought to fear God. But your husband is a sinner. He's a creature. He's a fallen man. God alone is worthy of our fear. One of my favorite uh, sets of books, series of books, is C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia. I've probably read through this Eh, maybe four or five times with my kids at this point now. They, they love those stories. I love those stories. And C.S. Lewis, the Christian who wrote these stories, puts all of these truths about God in here. And he uses great imagery to do this. So if you don't know about Chronicles of Narnia, the lion character, Aslan, represents Jesus throughout the whole series. Okay? And the first time that people are interacting with this idea of this lion in Narnia... They're talking to the Beaver family, and they're trying to understand who this Aslan is. And this is what goes down when Mr. Beaver tells Susan about the lion, Aslan, who is coming to Narnia. He says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. I love that. Of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. He's a lion, not a kitty. But he is good. He is the king, I tell you. You and I may struggle conceptually with what it means to fear the Lord and love Him. Feel the fear and compassion and love and relationship and friendship and all at the same time. How can we do that? You must see God for who He is. All you need is to read and believe what the Word of God says about Him. And that fear, love dynamic, will take care of itself. This is one of the reasons that I really don't like so many kids' Bibles. Because they oftentimes present a fluffy God and an, an effeminate version of Jesus. It's a God without wrath, oftentimes expressed. Why? Well, we don't want the kids to be afraid. Of course we do. What's wrong with you? Yes, we want our children to understand the fear of the Lord. Find yourself a good kid's Bible. If you go that route, if you're thinking, ah, they're visual, like to get one of those, find one. It tells of the battles, tells of the wrath of God, tells of his jealousy, tells of his holiness, tells of our deserving of his judgment. We don't want to make God, craft him in our image. We don't want to turn him into the kitten that sits on the lap that we can stroke and just have as a little friend who goes with us like a, like a secret, uh, invisible friend who follows us around through our life. We want our kids to understand the fear of the Lord. Do you think that the children who marched through the Red Sea, with a cloud, the, the fury of God and a, and a flaming pillar behind them, keeping the, the, the advance from the Pharaoh's men against You think that wasn't fearful for them? It is wrong for someone to say, well, if we teach them to fear, then they can't love. Wrong! They won't love rightly 
until they see who it is for real that they are to love. Fear is the natural result of understanding the holiness of God and our own sinfulness, our own unworthiness. It's natural. If you understand your unholiness and if you see his holiness and who he really is, who he tells us that he is in his word, it will happen for you. This is, this is partly what happens to the people in the days of the Exodus. After this time, a series of events will lead them, even through some of their own folly and sin, to Mount Sinai, where they will be given the law of God. And you might remember there was only one part of the law of God that they heard audibly. Do you remember that? There's a, there's, there are books full. The rest of Exodus is going to be filled with God's explicit commandments given to Moses to give to the people for the law. And that'd be repeated again in the next couple of books. But there was one portion that all the people heard together. They all heard it. That was the Ten Commandments. They came before God at Mount Sinai. A fiery cloud descended on the top of the mountain and thunderous clouds and, and, and lightning flashing. The sound of trumpets is all they could describe it as they heard. And the entire body of Israel together lined up around the outside of that mountain. And they looked up and they heard the voice of God speak the Ten Commandments. I want to show you what the response was from the people after God concluded the 10th commandment. This is what it says about the people in Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. Do not fear that the fear of him may be before you. Don't fear, fear. Huh. Why? How can he say this? How can Moses tell the people who are experiencing the right response to God's holiness in his mind? He's telling them what is sin. And what do you think is part of what's going on in their heart as this is taking place? How many of them can go, oh, check, 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 check. Get to the 10th and they're like, I, I'm good. I've done all of these. Perfect. Good. Who can do that? No one in this crowd can do that. And they all know that this holy God preaching his perfect standard of holiness to the people has put them at odds with him. Moses, we can't hear. If he tells us more, we will die. They commissioned Moses to stand between them and God as a mediator. And Moses says to them, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you. How does that work? How can he say, don't fear, fear? How can he say that? Because it's different things. Don't fear judgment, fear God. We're gonna get here in a minute, New Testament stuff. Do not fear. His speaking now is not for you to die. His speaking now is for you to hear and fear him that you may not sin. Get it? You get the idea there? Don't fear. He's, he's not ready to destroy you right now. That, that's what you don't need to fear. But that you would see him as fearful and that that would keep you from sinning. Hearing and trusting the word of God produces righteous fear. If you're a Christian, you're thinking like, man, I just, I'm struggling. I just don't. I just don't know if I really fear God like this says. How much time do you spend in the Word in a week? I mean, this isn't, I'm just not trying to guilt you as a Christ, typical Christian, spend X amount of time. I'll tell you right now, you spend time in the Word. You see who God says that He is. This will come out of you. As you see who God really is and who you really are, that will produce righteous fear. Look, this even says so in Proverbs chapter 2, 3 through 5. Check this out. This is Proverbs 2, 3 through 5. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, give me understanding. 
If you seek it like silver, something to be valued, and search for it as for hidden treasures, you set yourself to seeking insight. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Then, then you set yourself, you seek yourself to study this God, to study insight. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord. Of course, we are told to fear the Lord. But when we don't, as people, that is a mark of foolish ungodliness. Psalm 36.1 says, to the choir master of David, the servant of the Lord, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. That's what's being cited in Romans 3. There is no fear of God before his eyes. Or the folly in it. The irony today is that people are so quick to fear things that don't deserve their fear or attention while they boldly deny the only one worthy of our fear. Have you noticed how the world is infuriated by the fact that we refuse to be afraid of COVID-19, for example? Have you noticed this? And this doesn't discredit COVID being a reality. You could take whatever COVID's devastating effect could be, multiply it 20-fold, and we are still commanded to not fear it. I will not fear it, and I will not pretend to fear it. Get that? We are not allowed. We are not permitted by God to fear those things. The whole New Testament helps us in this. Guys, as you hear this harsh, but also the, the loving way that God deals with us in the New Testament, of course you're going to fear worldly things. You need to give those to God over and over and over, so you defeat those. That's how you deal with it. We will not fear earthly things. And the solution to fearing earthly things is to fear God instead. Christians sometimes, I think, struggle with this idea of fear and love, that dynamic we've been talking about. I, I want to show you some verses that I think will be helpful for you. I'm going to machine gun for you like 14 verses here that are on this list. I had way more, but here's just some summaries that I think are awesome. Just listen to the benefits and the blessings that accompany fear of the Lord. Let's listen to what the Bible says about this. Most of them are in the Psalms and in the Proverbs, a couple others elsewhere as well. Check this out. Psalm 103.11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. You fear God, steadfast love comes to you. Luke 1.50, And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation. Mercy flows to those who fear God. Proverbs 28, 14. Blessed is the one who fears the Lord always, but whoever hardens his heart will fall into calamity. You are blessed if you fear the Lord. Psalm 128, 4 says the same. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. Psalm 25, 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Can that work with anybody else? Not like God. Friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Psalm 33, 18 and 19. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Psalm 103, 13. As a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 145, 19, he fulfills the desire of those who fear him. Fulfills the desire of those who fear him? You don't hear that in the prosperity gospel churches. How are you going to get your health, wealth, prosperity? Fear the Lord. That's not the line preached. But the Bible says it. We do not say these are incompatible. The fear of the Lord and feeling compassion, the desires of our hearts fulfilled. Look what it continues on in Proverbs 19, 27. The fear of the Lord prolongs life. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence. What? Fear the Lord and have strong confidence. And his children will have a refuge. You fearing the Lord is what is best for your kids. 
Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life that one may turn away from the snares of death. Proverbs 15, 33. The fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 19, 23. The fear of the Lord leads to life and whoever has it is satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. And lastly, check this one out. Proverbs 15, 16. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble without it. Or great treasure and trouble with it. Better is a little with the fear of the Lord than great treasure and trouble without it. That's the blessing and benefits of the fear of the Lord. Why would we not want to teach our kids to fear God? This is what they get. Why would we not tell the world? If you were to survey random people on the street and ask them what they thought was God's greatest attribute or character quality, I'm betting that most would mention something about him being a loving God. This sentiment is often expressed by people who would not even identify as Christians. I'm not a Christian. I don't even believe in your God. But even when we're down on the street, super common in front of Planned Parenthood or just doing street evangelism to have somebody come up and confront us by saying something to the effect of, that's not very Christ-like. That's not very godly. That's not very loving. I don't even believe in God, but that's not loving. Never mind the fact that their perception of what love is and how it is expressed has been so corrupted that just like the multitudes in Jesus' day, many people wouldn't know God's love if it slapped them in the face. But it is common for people to assume that the most important aspect of God's character is his love, and it is very true that God is loving. 1 John 4 even says that God is love. He's more loving than you and I could ever imagine. But the Bible never says that God is loving, loving, loving. But both the Old and the New Testament say together that God is holy, holy, holy. Did you know they didn't have highlighters back then? This is how you'd highlight a text and underline it and circle it. He's not, he's not just holy. He's holy, 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 perfect. Our perfectly loving God is a holy God, infinitely holy, holy, holy. And that is why we fear him. The Christian might ask, though, but if we've been forgiven of our sins, then how are we supposed to fear God? Does not perfect love cast out fear? 1 John 4 continues to say that, yes. Absolutely it does. You and I need not fear judgment anymore because we've been forgiven. But even that forgiveness is to lead us to the fear of God. Let the Bible tell you that. First, uh, Psalm 130. Look, look carefully at these words. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Our forgiveness does not get us out of fearing God. Our forgiveness draws us into fearing God. We fear him because of our sin and because of his holiness. When we think of our iniquities and that the only thing that keeps us from his wrath is gracious forgiveness, that is a terrifying prospect. Why are you forgiven? Not because of anything that you have done. The only thing that you and I have contributed are the sins that need forgiving. This is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, the, of wisdom. Because it acknowledges our two most fundamental realities. Number one, there is a holy God. And number two, we have sinned against him. If you were to find a person dying on the street and you had a, a, a minute to share the gospel, you'd have to share these two things to start. There is a holy God, and you have sinned against him and are deserving of his judgment. But God demonstrated his love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He sent his only son that whoever would believe in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The death and resurrection of Jesus rescues us from the fearful wrath of God. We don't need to fear judgment. We fear the one worthy of being feared. People in our world, people in our country do not know 
their God. And whose responsibility is it to tell them? It's been given to us. Did you know back in the 1950s, 95% of our country identified as Christian? And even if you were to be as skeptical as I am about statistics and say, well, anyone can check a box, nearly 50% of people in the country then went to a church on any given Sunday. That's, that's huge. What happened then? How did we get to where we are? We stopped telling people about the truth about God and themselves and instead told them what they wanted to hear. That's what happened. It's not difficult. The Bible promised this is going to happen. People would gather those around them who would tell them what their itching ears want to hear. That's what happened. Father, forgive us for not conveying to the world how holy you are, how sinful we are. Forgive our generational tacit approval of the fake version of God that the world believes. You know, it's not at all hard to find people in our neighborhoods today who will admit that they hate God. You can find them. But perhaps the best word that I can find to describe the prevailing disposition toward God in our country today is meh. How can they think that? Perhaps because that's the God that they've been hearing about. Perhaps that's just because of what they've heard that God is. And if God really is that kitty cat God, if he really is that fluffy version, if he really is just Santa Claus in the sky, if he really is just grandpa looking down on us, then they are right to reject that God. They are right to not care what that false God thinks. When the world looks to us, they need to see us viewing God rightly and declaring rightly who he really is. I told you before, I really do feel like uh, we're in a culture battle right now. Uh, It seems to me like we are on that bullet train heading to destruction. And as it picks up speed, people are going to break their legs as they they try jumping off that crazy train. And we need to be there with them. But we need to be there with the right view of God, telling them who he really is. A high view of God is an absolute necessity for a body of believers and for our witness in this world. The version of the gospel that the world has become all too familiar with is a joke to them. Have you ever told somebody about heaven? And because they think that they understand who this God is, it's laughable to them. They go, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to stare at this Old guy sitting on a throne, long beard, for eternity singing songs to him. Why would I want to do that? Because they don't picture God right. They don't know what his word says about him. Perhaps it's because Christians haven't been preaching who he really is. Clearly and loudly and widely enough. Perhaps it's because their hardened hearts refuse to hear it. But the solution is clear. To preach who he is and who we are and the only fix for that obvious problem, the death of our Lord Jesus on a cross. I'm sometimes asked by flatlanders back in Chicago where I'm from, when they come visit, do you ever get tired of seeing these mountains? They ask us all this time. You know what my answer is? Never. It's been seven years. I haven't lived here all my life. Every time I leave the west side of South Jordan where we live and drive east, I love that I get to drive east because I get to look at these mountains, whether it's rain or shine, whether it's nighttime and the moon's out or the sun's coming up behind or even through the smog of the inversions, the mountains are amazing. I never get tired of looking at the mountains. And guys, that's just a pile of rocks. Our God is infinitely more beautiful, more majestic than that. I was taken aback by just, again, yesterday, as I'm playing with my, my kids at the table and my, my little daughter, all I have to do is look at her, and she laughs. I just smile, and she laughs, and then she says, again, again. I do it again, and then she says, again. And I do it again, again, on repeat, because in her innocence, she hasn't lost that joy. God is so much bigger, so much more beautiful than any daddy on earth so much more majestic than a pile of rocks in the mountains. Of 
course we want to look at that for forever. Of course we want to see him for forever. We want to praise him forever. We want to, want to revel in that majesty forever. Yes! Our world views our God wrong. I'm going to close our time today with another C.S. Lewis quote from that same Chronicles of Narnia. It's my favorite of the books. It's a horse and his boy. It's about horses that can talk. It's Narnia, so it's cool. And they have this, this, this background knowledge of this character named Aslan, this lion who kind of, the lion who rules over all of Narnia. But they've never met him or interacted with him. They assume that it's a myth, these two horses, because they've never seen anything that makes them think otherwise. They don't realize that he's working behind the scenes all the time. Towards the end of the story, these two horses meet Aslan, the lion, face to face. They actually see the giant lion, larger than they ever thought, more terrifying and beautiful than they ever thought. And one of the horses looks to Aslan, this lion that represents our Jesus. And this is what the horse says to that lion. Please, she said, you are so beautiful. You may eat me if you'd like. I'd rather be eaten by you and fed by anyone else. I love that line. We need Christians today who fear God more than the world. Men and women of God who care more about what God thinks than anyone else. Who set their hearts to please God rather than collect fans and friends. And I'll close with this last verse. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. Let's pray. Oh, Father God, you are infinite and holy and perfect and just and righteous and the only being in all of existence that is worthy of our fear. Father, help us to see you as you really are. Help us to convey who you really are to the lost people of this world. Help us to love you and the lost so much that we will not tell them of a false version of you, but that we will tell them of a God worthy of being feared and yet a God who loves so big that he sent his only son to die a sinner's death that whoever would believe may have eternal life. We love you, Lord. Help us to preach this gospel until your son returns. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.